Hello, everyone. Welcome to Scholars Beyond the Tower, conversations from our fields. We're all involved in something, and our work matters. I'm Erin. And I'm Caroline. I always wonder how they decide that somebody is X percent, X percent of somebody's DNA is British, mm-hmm. given that Britain is an island. Mm. Like it, 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 it sort of in, in, right, there's that question, like when does, some, when does DNA become British, for example? When does it stop? I mean, I know like you, if you go back enough millions of years, it's, it's all African, but when does, it, when does the DNA start being British as opposed to being Jute or Frisian <laughs> or Danish or you know, any of the other, or Roman or any of the other people who conquered the crap out of Britain over the years? Yeah, it's, well, that's why it tried to, it, it tries to place where I, my ancestors lived and it says that most lived in greater London, but then it's like, well, some could have lived in the North. They could have lived in Wales. It's yeah. I don't, there is no. When you do a 23 and me and, and it tells you your ancestors lived in Britain. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the question Adam is saying is though, is like my ancestors from, from when, yeah, exactly. You know, that's true. Because I have ancestors from a hundred years ago. I have ancestors from five hundred years ago. I guess, right? So yeah. Well, and this is. I mean, where, you know, I, it's an oral history too, right? You're kind of right. interpreting. I know a lot about the British side of my family because they were, or are still, British farmers. Well, from a British farming family in North Jersey. So I know a lot about the Tottens. I think it's safe um, to say they're no longer British. Farmers. Well, they're no longer British. <laughs> um, I mean, some some relatives might still be in the DAR, but um, my oh, grandfather was in the Elks, um, and that that meant something. I don't really are know. You talking, what meant. Are you talking about Goyesha clubs? Because I have no idea. Like, yes, it's one of the society clubs. We speak we speak English on this podcast. Yes, yes. I have no you don't idea know what, what you're the Elks are. About. No. The Elk Lodge. It was one of those fraternal organizations. Like how you okay, have I got it. the Catholics have the Knights of Columbus, the Presbyterians have the Elks, or um, some are Freemasons. Sure. That's a whole okay. different type of organization. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, <laughs> well, welcome Adam Capitanio to the Hi. Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I. Uh, I know Adam very well from my public humanities project that is ever expanding, um, but had a final date in 2020, now that we're in the new year. Um, I'm sure, Adam, you have probably many that you've worked with in public humanities who their projects continue in different iterations. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think most of them, um, I think very few of them actually have a kind of final date or a final like 
you know, moment and then just kind of like, that's it. That's the end. Uh, I think a lot of them end up sort of continuing in some form or another, you know, onto, um, in some form or another, uh, you know, end up spinning off into other projects or um, become sort of in perpetuity projects. So I definitely want to bookmark the question of how, like, how you supervise people's projects or how you interact with people who are doing projects and stuff like that. But let's, um, well, let's get a bit official, of... His official title, though, is Senior Program Officer with that's Humanities right. New York. Oh, that sounds good. That's, <laughs> yeah. a good. that's a that's a good business card. You can, like, you can be dropping that on people like it's a $100 bill. I like that. It's got a good ring to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my but my business card might still so say program officer though because oh you gotta you gotta update that I know I think we ordered so many of them though that's a I that's a the, rookie mistake uh, well just fi- find one of the <laughs> find one of those places that's advertising business cards and and go nuts you know five hundred for ten dollars yeah, or something exactly like that. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly and then and then and then whoops you have to suck up all the hidden fees yeah <laughs> yeah. But I think anyway. you were getting into how did Adam C, and this is just my own, we're the three A's, <laughs> but <laughs> this is getting even more of a mirroring symbol yeah. with Adams. But Careful we don't call it tow truck. Yeah, well, I think you both have enough of a distinction of your uh, voice that the listeners will be able to tell who's talking. But um, Adam K., you were explaining um, a question that you had, right? I was going to ask, um, we always like to ask people, you know, what, what your background is. How, how did you get to be where you are today? Okay. What, what, what drew you towards it and what did you have to climb over? Um, okay. Uh, that's, I mean, I, I guess obviously there's a long version and a short version of that. Um, but, and I can give you guys either one, but. Yeah, I feel like right now I can even <laughs> see visually because we always record this uh, via video for everyone listening. So like right now I see, <laughs> Adam, you have a certain analysis going on in your eyes of, well, should I give them this long diatribe of how I got to where I am or just the quick and dirty? Uh, right. Well, let's start with the quick and dirty. There may yeah. be there may be some like fun anecdotes to to s- stick in there and so on. Anyway, okay. carry it. We, we leave it to your judgment. Well, okay. Yeah. I mean, I can I can give you the sort of um, the hyphenated or the atrophied version, I suppose. <laughs> um, so I, um, you know, I mean, I come to my position out of academia i suppose um and when i finished my uh doctorate in 2012 i think it was um i often tell people it's sort of it's starting to get to the point now where it was long enough ago that i have to think about it for a minute to remember what year it was that i defended and everything um but so i got a i finished my doctorate and then um obviously needed to find a job, you know, needed to find work that would pay bills. Um, 
And obviously, like most people who do a doctorate, the first plan, plan A was academia. Um, but that wasn't really working out um, for a number of reasons we can get into later on if you guys are interested. Um, so I needed to find something else to do. Um, I was adjuncting for a little while, um, and uh, but I wanted to find you know something that was more stable um, mm -hmm. and so I was uh, here in New York City which is uh, home for me and uh, you know I basically was starting to think about okay what else could I do um, mm -hmm. with you know the experience I had the skill sets that I had things like that and um, well where were you adjuncting I'm just curious were you doing that in New York or were you doing that in your this uh, city where you were doing your PhD, uh, I was doing it here in New York. I was adjuncting at um, uh, in the CUNY system in, at Queensboro Community College, which is out in you know, um, geez, I forget where in Queens at it is, but um, you know, it's it's out east in Queens a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's not the easiest place to get to actually by public transport. Um, and uh, also at um, uh, Kingsborough Community College, which is also not easy to get to by public transportation. Mm -hmm. Kingsborough Community College is way down. If you guys have never actually been there, it's kind of a fascinating place, Kingsborough Community College. It's way down um, by like, uh, like Manhattan Beach there. Yes, yes it's, it's right after Brighton Beach, isn't it? Yeah. I ended up driving there once. Yeah. Yeah. The campus itself is actually on the beach. Yeah. It's, it's a like, dead end. Yeah. It's, it's at the dead end of the street mm -hmm. there and it's like on the beach itself. Yeah. Um, Fascinating I can't place. Yeah, exactly. I can't imagine the students get much done like at the end of the spring semester, but, um, <laughs> you know, but wait, uh, so where was your PhD again? So I did my uh, PhD at uh, Michigan state in okay in East Lansing, Michigan. Yeah, mm -hmm. very different type of environment. Yes, yeah, East Lansing is very much a like Midwestern college town. Um, you know, it's like, and Michigan State is like one of those gigantic Midwestern, you know, state schools, like uh, some huge number of students, like 40,000, 50,000 students or something like that. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's right. Yeah. It's Wait, sorry. Right, Go ahead. Yeah, it's right next to Lansing, which is the capital of Michigan. So it, you know, there's like a small size city there, um, but very different from New York for yeah. in many ways, obviously. But you didn't see yourself continuing to live in Michigan. Well, no. Um, I mean, for one reason, I came back to New York because. Uh, I was in my sixth or seventh year um, in the program there, and the uh, my funding line was essentially up. I didn't have mm -hmm. funding anymore there. Like um, they they had no, you know, they had mo no more money to give me. Essentially, uh, to you know finish up my. Uh, degree. I was in the dissertation mm -hmm. stage anyway, so 
um, you know, at that point, there was nothing really keeping me there. I mean, I could have stayed there and like maybe adjunct, you know, adjunct at Michigan State or, you know, there's a few other schools in the area, um, like community colleges mm -hmm. and um, a few other small private schools. And, you know, there's other schools there, but, mm -hmm. and I could, I could have stayed there. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know, I kind of wanted to come home anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, when you, you had spent a lot of time in New York City um, for your undergrad. and Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I did my undergrad at NYU. I also did a master's degree at NYU. So I had spent, I mean, basically, my, I basically spent my adult life in New York, which at that time was not a lot, you know, I was pretty young. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I also like, I grew up on Long Island. So, you know, New York city and the surrounding area was home for me anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so, so did you have a nice network then when you came back to New York? Um, I knew some, you know, some of my friends were still here. Um, in, in terms of like a, like a, academic network or like a job network yeah or an nyu network even um i mean like i like i said some of my friends were still here um but surprisingly enough actually a lot of my in the time i had been in michigan a lot of folks i knew had left new york um yeah. i think interesting you know, during the period i think during the period i was gone it was um you know, I was, I was in Michigan from 2005 until 2011. Um, ah, the economic collapse. Yeah. So it was during the economic collapse. It was also during um, the sort of, uh, you know, sort of a boom period mm -hmm. right before the economic collapse when, you know, Bloomberg was mayor. Um, so I think a lot of people had kind of left New York because it got very expensive, but then also because of the economic collapse and stuff like that. So uh, I think the city changed a lot during that time. I think a lot of people went on to um, quote unquote greener pastures, you know, um, you know, or different pastures maybe um, yeah, yeah. of some kind during that time period. So browner uh, pastures, browner pastures, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> You know, so, uh, so so you end up adjuncting then at Queensborough, Kingsborough, Kingsborough, right? Um, and you had to take mass transit between them. I'm actually, the sense still actually still had a car at that point because ah, okay. I was coming from Michigan, where you can't live without a car. So I still did have a car at that point. Um, ah, okay. So you know, I used to drive on the you know Northern State and the Belt Parkway and stuff like that during in traffic, which was you know, which is always lots of fun. Yeah, um, it's always a good time. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a good time. <laughs> so how long were you doing the ad, doing um, different adjuncting positions? It wasn't that long. Um, I still did adjunct a little while um, at Kingsborough when I, when I got my, when I got a full-time job, um, just because I needed the extra money still. Um, but it was probably, it was probably a couple years. Okay. So it wasn't terribly long. And what, what was your first full-time job then? 
Um, so my first full-time job in New York was at a, an academic publisher, a private academic publisher called Berghahn. Um, they publish, um, they are, their sort of um, specialty, I guess you could say, or the subjects that they are focused on are like anthropology and European history. Um, they publish in a few other areas as well. Um, but they're like a fairly small press. They're independent, you know, they're not associated with any university or anything like that. So mm -hmm. how do you spell um, it? B-E-R-G-H-A-H-N, Berghahn. Ah, hmm. are they still operating? Uh, yeah, they're, they're still, huh. they're still out there. Um, That's good. Yeah, I was yeah, worried yeah. that there was going to be a, <laughs> a, uh, you know, rise yeah. and fall narrative here. Yeah, no, 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 no. They they still exist. Um, they're still out there, which is good. Um, but you know, and, and you know, it doesn't surprise me. Like, if unless you're in those fields, I think um, it's not surprising. I think if you haven't heard of them, like, unless you're you know, an anthropologist or a historian of Europe. Um, hmm. So, how long do you end up working then for Berghahn? <laughs> Uh, I think I was there for a little over a year. Okay. Um, not especially long. Um, so are you still continuing job searches as you're there? So I was. So I got, um, so I worked at Berghahn, which I said, like I said, is an academic publisher. And um, I figured out pretty quickly that academic publishing was not really for me. Um, what was the sticking point? Yeah. It's uh, a good question. I don't, I'm not sure if I, it, maybe it was just like nitty gritty of um, the kind of work itself, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, especially when you're at a kind of, um, you know, editorial assistant level, I guess you could say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so was it stim? It sounds like it wasn't really stimulating your mind. I guess. I, yeah. I mean, I guess that's an accurate way to put it. Um, yeah. And it's not that you know you have any ill will towards those you worked with it just no wasn't the right fit it just wasn't the right fit i mean yeah. other people i think it would be the right fit for you this know? is this is touching on something that really bothers me about the hiring process in general which is that it's so difficult to, to say i yeah i just didn't like working there so i left mm -hmm. when you're talking i mean you're talking to us and that's fine but when you're talking to like an employer I think we get into the habit of finding such diplomatic ways to talk about our employers that it's, it's really troubling, right? It's really, it's <laughs> like you, it, it, it's like, it's like if you, if you have a bad experience at a job or multiple jobs, you're a bad seed <laughs> when maybe you just haven't found your thing yet. Yeah. I mean, that, that could be, True. I mean, like people go along, I mean, people, some people go their entire lives without really finding like a job that they're quote unquote happy with. Right. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'm just curious how many, what was the common narrative? I mean, you were there for a year, but right. 
it was a few years ago. So it was um, more than a few years ago. It was probably, I mean, I've been in my current job for over six years. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. But it's like far, it's recent enough that you probably yeah. remember maybe still um, those who worked there that were many of them in their positions for like 10 years, 20 years, like, was this a dead end job for them? Not a dead end. Not dead end. Sorry. sorry. That's not what I mean. Was this a permanent, was this a job that they were going to stay in until they retired? I mean, for some folks, sure. I mean, either that job or a similar job, you know, maybe, maybe a similar job function at a different organization, maybe, um, you know, like if, you know, if I look at the company, you know, I think it's a, had a perfectly normal sort of, you know, rate of, I guess, turnover rate, I guess you could we'd call it in the, you know, corporate speak. Um, so it's not like everyone's know, leaving every year. No, there was folks who had been there for five or 10 years and, you know, there's folk, some of those people, you know, you know, I look at, I still occasionally will look at their website to see what they're up to. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. the, the company. And some of the folks who I worked with there, you know, a number of years ago are still there. Um, and then there's new names on the website that I don't recognize. So, you know, I think it's like some folks stick around five, 10 years, you know, uh, even longer. And then some folks are, you know, stick around for a year or two and move on to something else. I, you know, yeah. I think that's perfectly normal. I'm a bit curious, um, given where we are and what we're talking about, this may be a bit dated information, but I found it very difficult to apply to, I mean, I tried at some point to apply to um, academic publishing type roles and found it very difficult to gain any traction. I'm curious, I'm not asking if you have a secret. I assume there's no secret, but like, there's what no secret to applying to any job, really, I think. But <laughs> Like, do you, did you know a person or did you just put yourself that's, out there? I mean, that's the secret, really. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so the, um, I mean, as, as much as it, uh, you know, the secret kind of is, the secret is sort of knowing somebody um, mm -hmm. because that's what many times will you know, at least get a, get you a interview. Um, yeah. So there is to, you know, there is something there to that. But um, so for academic publishing, I guess, anyway, the, the way I kind of got into it was that um, when I had been a graduate student, um, one of the, one of my committee members was the editor uh, of a journal, um, and the journal was situated at Michigan State. The, it's the Journal of Popular Culture, um, and he was, uh, you know, he was the editor of the journal. So, um, what some folks would do, you know, some of the graduate students and stuff that he was, you know, on their committees, or he was, um, you know, uh, managing their dissertations or whatever. Um, you know, they could, um, you know, earn a few extra bucks by 
mm. being editorial assistants for the journal, you know, basically like, you know, just doing the, some of the grunt work, yeah. you know, taking in um, submissions to the journal, sending them out to peer reviewers, you know, basic like bookkeeping and, and that kind of menial work mm -hmm. that needs to be done to run. Andrew, that's what you do for. Um... Yeah, I do that for a um, literary journal in New Jersey based mm -hmm. out of um, uh, Seton Hall. It's called the, uh, the Wachong Review. Okay. After the Watching Mountains. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So similar. I, I'm, in yeah, charge, similar, similar. I'm an editorial assistant, so I'm in charge of soliciting peer reviews. And Adam was one of the, well, actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Well, I'm not going to say, as long as I don't say what article it was, I think I'm going to Yeah, I mean, it's, but, yeah, it's, I've, it's a really, um, I mean, if, you know, Adam's name is, if his name is in the list of, uh, I don't know, that editorial board or something, I don't know. It wouldn't be. Fair it wouldn't be. But um, I'm going to keep it very secretive in terms yeah. of. Yeah, I used know, it, I, I wore a about. fake mustache while I was doing the okay. review. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it was actually, it was actually quite sad because this was my first, the first time I'd ever, I'd ever peer reviewed something and I had to reject it because there were just numerous problems with it. But the sense that I got, and this is something that I do think that our, that people need to hear. The sense that I got was that this was not an academic person mm -hmm. and they were trying to write something resembling an academic article and they just didn't have, like they just weren't fluent in the language, which is like, I would really have liked to email this person personally and said, listen, I'm the the hatchet man and I'd love to work with you on this. But they said that that was against their policy. Because um, obviously an anonymous review, who, 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 who could have guessed that you right. can't reveal <laughs> anonymous yeah, reviews? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they can't unmask you. But what, mm -hmm. what, what, I, what I want to say to that person or to, to some version of that person who might be listening to this mm. is that it's not your fault that the article got rejected. And what you need to do is, um, is get someone to help you with taking what you have to say mm. and, and depositing it into a more academic idiom. Because the best thing for all of us would be to have more people. I think this person was a, was a grade school teacher. Mm -hmm. The best thing for all of us would be for, uh, for, for more non-academic people to get academic papers published. I agree. Uh, clarify. It's actually called the Wachung Review. And it's, <laughs> um, but it's part of the New Jersey College English Association. We'll put um we'll put a link to yeah, it. Yeah, I'll put a link. Well, and also in the notes anyone, as well. We always love pitching uh, anyone to join our Ivory Tower Boiler Room Twitter or Facebook. So I'm right. always looking for peer reviewers. Right. The, so there's the um, pitch. But yeah, so Adam, you're working at so you're working at the um so, so well yeah. yeah, so I I was at the um academic publisher, which I, which I kind of, I think got a, managed to get a foot in the door because I had had this mm -hmm. earlier editorial assistant experience on the journal. Um, and now I'm actually, uh, you know, it's kind of funny that how the, 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 you know, the shoe gets on the other foot because, you know, mm -hmm. now 
you know, I, when I was a graduate student, I was an editorial assistant on this journal, and now I, you know, review essays for the journal as a peer reviewer. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, it, it's basically like as soon as I got the piece of paper that said, you know, congratulations, you're a doctor. Um, <laughs> now I'm now qualified to, you know, read um, <laughs> anything that they slide across my table. You're um, also qualified to say, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> um, so, so how do you how do you eventually, and maybe this will jump too far, so if you want to retract and go back, that's completely okay, but how do you then see Humanities New York on your radar? Um, okay, yeah, so I will, um, I will get there in one second. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I thought you Stay meant here. too far, no. like too personal. <laughs> That was definitely not yeah, that personal. No, it's it's not a very personal. personal very personal. Um, this may be too far, but what do you look for in a humanities <laughs> fellowship? Yeah, uh, granting uh, program. So, well, I guess well, one of the ways I was um, while I was looking for a a full time job, you know, doing something that was not in academia, mm -hmm. while I was you know, uh, while I was looking for stuff, I was sort of looking, you know, so I had the, I got the job at um, Berghahn, but, you know, while I was, before I was, before I got that job, and then, you know, a little bit even afterwards, mm -hmm. um, I was looking for um, basically places that I could um, meet other people who had PhDs in the city who were, you know, either working in academia or outside of academia, um, just as a sort of support system, but also as a kind of for networking purposes, um, you know, basically because, you know, one of the things that, you know, when you're looking for a job, everybody else says, oh, you got to network, you, net, you know, that's yeah. like the, that's like the piece of advice that everybody gives you. Yeah. When mm -hmm. you're frustrated and depressed. Right. Yeah. That's when you have to go out and meet people. Right. Which is of course the easiest thing to do in the world when you, you know, <laughs> and, I don't, and I also haven't shaved I, for 10 days, yeah, you know? Um, yeah. But my frustration too, with just the buzzword network is like, that you don't always, especially when you're nearing, right? I'm nearing the end of the PhD right now. Right. But I have a very clear vision of what networking is looks like as an illustration. But I think so many PhDs would not say that they actually can visualize what a networking system is because mm -hmm. it's not something that you're always taught in your program. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I don't know that anyone is taught really to network. Um, yeah. Like even folks who, you know, uh, you know, maybe somebody is somewhere, uh, you know, maybe MBAs get taught how to do it. I don't know, but, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but. It's a marketing strategy. Right. Yeah. It's you're you're essentially, you know, and it sounds sort of mercenary, like <laughs> in some respects, but um, yeah. Cause you're kind of like, selling yourself um, mm -hmm. in a way but you know but you don't want to like 
it's but it sucks to have to kind of like go into all social situations with that being the sort of goal to kind of like you know meet and hang out with people but with the sort of intention of like oh is this person you know somebody who can you mm -hmm. know do me a favor or get me a job sometimes yeah i always feel a little bit you know? cheap when i'm doing stuff like that precisely yeah um like hi nice to meet you how can you help me right exactly um <sighs> No, the best is when you get kicked when you get kicked to the side for someone else who's trying to one up you with the networking. Yeah. Oh, have you done that? Have you been a character in a Jane Austen novel like that? Yeah, well, I've been the one who usually I'm talking with someone and they'll be like, Oh, this person I need to um network with is here at the conference. Talk to you later. I Ouch. mean, if it's someone yeah. I'm really close with, Ouch. I completely understand. Mm -hmm. Like if it's a really good friend of mine. Sometimes, right, and there's also a way to handle these situations that doesn't make the person feel like you're now uh, <laughs> uh, abandoning them. But um, yeah, so you're so you're meeting all of these fellow recent PhDs, right? And I was doing that through a couple groups that were sort of explicitly set up for that purpose. There was one call. Uh, there's one called. I think it. I should say it's called because I think it still exists called versatile PhD oh, yeah. uh, which um, I think has chapters in a number of places around um, the country even um, yeah we'll include the link I've actually I created a profile with them before okay yeah it's a, it's a great site right yeah so I, I, I went to some of their meetings um, and uh, uh, I also went to another group um, called PhDs at Work. Um, and uh, Versatile PhDs actually where I um, met the, um, or actually met the journalist who um, later I talked to and they took a picture of me and stuff like that. There was a, I don't know if you've seen the New York Times story that like, that I'm in for like a hot second, um, like seven or eight years ago. Um, but that's where I'm at the journey. Well, now I feel guilty because I don't think I know this New York Times story, but <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll take it up. There's a picture. There's a picture of me in there and everything. Um, okay. Well, as uh, you're talking, I'm gonna quickly find it because okay, yeah, yeah. we have the editing um, powers that big. So the the uh, so that's where I met this journalist at the versatile PhD. Um, one of those events and uh you know the the ah. i'm quoted in it for like a sentence it's not a big deal um and but then november at the 3rd, other yeah november 3rd 2013 okay yeah, you, so it's called about seven years ago the repurposed phd finding life after academia and not feeling bad about it mm -hmm. That's um, it. Yep. yeah and you come in I just want to see how they address you. Um, yeah, you can. Oh, yes. There's, a pic there's your picture. Yep, there's me. Did they get his good side? No, this is a very, well, yeah, very uh, expansive picture of you in this never-ending shining. It's actually the hallway. It's actually the hallway of um, the office building on J Street where Berghahn Books is located i think they're still there probably um i'm just waiting for like the um 
the quote from me. <laughs> the, the twins, well that, but also the twins in The Shining. Oh yes, it's like yeah, someone yeah, yeah. in the background. Yeah. Like yeah, some for someone in the good. background to be, something to be lurking behind me. No, cause yeah, well, when everyone looks up this New York Times article, um, you'll just see how far back this hallway goes. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a kid in a, on a tricycle. Exactly. Yeah, well, here's your quote. I'll read it. Two red so eyes. I have it up. You say, a little more than halfway through, it dawns on me how bad the job market actually was. Um, talking about PhDs at work, you, you say, I looked everywhere, a confused humanities post-academic would look. <laughs> Nonprofits, museums, <laughs> media companies. I ended up in that refuge of former academics. Publishing. So yeah, there you go. So it's it's from it's, you know some years back. So uh, the you know I sound a little more naive, but you know I the the picture you know makes me look a little more a little better because I was a little younger too. So you know. Um, well, so do you still? Um, would you still give that type of outlook? Uh, you maybe you'd have to read the quote again. I don't know, like uh, something about being confused. Um. <laughs> oh, you say that you say it happened a little more than halfway through your program. Oh, yeah. You realized how bad the job market was. Right. Well. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I would still. I, I, you know. I. I mean, there's no point. I guess in you know, playing revisionist historian. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it took until about maybe halfway through my PhD program. I guess maybe when you're at the point where you're done with your, um, well, for me anyway, when I was done with my exams and was starting to work on maybe the, the actual dissertation, mm -hmm. and I started to think about, well, okay, I'm going to have to go on the job market in a few years when this dissertation is actually done, so maybe I should start seriously looking at the job market and thinking about it and um this was actually about at the same time i mean you know maybe these two things coincided a little bit um but things would have been the same probably had they not coincided but it, it coincided around the same time as the um the uh 2008 um mm. recession so um you know, I started to look at the job market a little bit as I was starting my my dissertating. Uh, and of course, I realized that like, well, actually, the job market is like, terrible, you know, um, mm -hmm. there's not much out there, especially for somebody, you know, with kind of my specializations. Um, I mean, yeah, I think I, that's probably just for the record. What do you want to tell everybody what your specializations were? Yeah. We've, we've been, this is unusual for us that we spend so little time talking about what your actual academic focus was. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so my, my, my doctorate is in uh, American studies. Uh, but my, my specialization, my kind of focus is in um, film and media history. Um, and my dissertation uh, was on um, was on home movies and home video, so like amateur family produced um, media, uh, essentially from if you want to give like a time frame from it from the nineteen um, twenties oh, wow. roughly to the nineteen nineties. 
Okay. Yeah. And is it all it, is it all child friendly? I'm just curious. Good God. Yes. Andrew. I don't I I'm do not sorry. Go, I mean, come on. That's not in the back of your mind. I don't go into amateur pornography. It's in the back of okay. my mind. It's clearly in the front of yours. <laughs> no, there are He's he's right. I mean, like, you know, there's, there's part of the reason was there is a whole host of um, existing scholarship and literature on um, like amateur pornography and um, I mean, pornography in general, obviously, but uh, and um, the sort of like, especially early on, like there's uh, the sort of line between especially like during the silent period and mm. um, stuff like that, the line between what is amateur and what is professional pornography is sort of a shade. That's um, fascinating actually. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> yeah, it is my, the- my, my dissertation advisor kind of early on said to me, like, if like there's like, that's like a whole other kind of like, Hmm you know, sort of realm that, you know, if you kind of go into that, it's going to be sort of, it's going to expand things outward. Um, hmm. So yeah, it it's might, a subfield now. I mean, yeah, it's, studies, they have centers at universities. I mean, well, I have to find this book for the listeners, but there's a book about regulating adult video. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's tied mostly to the Times Square and Metropolitan's cinemas and um video stores but okay i got you real off i (laughs) got what i wanted out of that conversation but okay writing about (laughs) was that was um, that good for you andrew yeah all good um (laughs) so so i want i want to take another little detour um something that we talked about uh earlier Mm -hmm. when we first met is that i mean I think I think everybody can agree what you wrote about sounds like a fascinating mm-hmm. and little trod upon topic, right? The idea of home videos, they were ubiquitous in a lot of our childhoods. And yes. to have somebody um, sort of collate all of that, you know, evidence and, and try to make a scholarly argument out of that seems to me long overdue. Yeah. Um, but you were there, saying there that are other the, people who there I'm are, sure people there are. Who do it. Yeah. I'm sure there are. Yeah. But you were saying that because you have this sort of interdisciplinary mm. uh, lens, you have trouble fitting into a lot of people's uh, sort of job descriptions, right? A lot of these wanted ads, for lack of a better term, they'll want either a historian or a film studies person, but not somebody who does both. Right. So when I got to the job market, um, I had... St- part of the reason I had trouble, I think, was that, um, well, for one thing, American studies positions are um, few and far between. Um, You know, American studies as a field is a pretty small field, um, especially compared to some of the, um, you know, the sort of main, quote unquote, mainstream humanities (laughs) fields. and uh so you know when it came time to like look for a academic position um you know i could apply to an american studies position um well you know and i did um or i could you know and i could also try my hand at some other positions in other disciplines um Mm -hmm. 
so you know I, I tried applying to um, positions in like film studies departments and like media studies departments um, I also tried a few positions in places like um, you know like English departments or even history departments where the you know I saw like you know I read the description and I was like okay you know like I can make a case for myself as a fit here you know like an English department that said uh, you know we want somebody who you know has a sort of uh, brings a brings a broader lens than just uh, straightforward literature or um, mm -hmm. you know a history department that's like you know we're looking for a, a you know cultural historian of 20th century America or something like this you know what I mean um, but ultimately <clears throat> And, you know, obviously I don't know that this is the case definitively, but um, I think that uh, being in a uh, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary field like American studies um, and, you know, I'm sure folks who are in other, you know, similar fields like that, you know, um, I'm sure people who, you know, finish with, um, doctorates in you know something like women's studies or something like um or comparative you know, literature comparative literature or um you know any of the other kind of a lot of the area studies um mm -hmm. you know find that this is probably the case too when they try to apply to one of the uh more kind of mainstream mainstream is not the right word but maybe traditional i guess discipline areas um mm -hmm. is that they have a tough time because when it comes down to it, a lot of times those, the, the hiring committees and those kinds of departments uh, say they look at your kind of degree and they kind of go, okay, but we would prefer to actually hire somebody whose PhD says history or whose PhD says English literature or whose yeah. PhD says whatever philosophy or whatever the case might be, you know? I, in, in, I was told something similar, even, I mean, this is such a narrow complaint from an outside perspective. But when I was formulating my dissertation, um, my wonderful no filter, uh, what's it called? Um, Chair. Uh, <laughs> professor said <laughs> that I had to be able to write my dissertation such that when I went in front of a hiring committee, they would be asking themselves, can this person teach a Shakespeare class? Can mm -hmm. this person teach a Spencer class? Can this person teach a Milton class? Right. And I ended up choosing at least one of my chapters based on that idea. I, I went with one chapter on Spencer, one chapter on Milton, and then two chapters, uh, one chapter on something I thought was logically connected to the other two. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I went with Margaret Cavendish because yeah, you, you really can't, you, you really can't <laughs> write a dissertation and ignore the most important woman in the field. Right. Yeah. But um, then you but, realized, oh, there's no one teaching Spencer anymore as a course. There are people teaching Spencer. It's just not. It's no, no, no. It's jobs. certainly not as big. I mean, yeah, the, exactly. The like jobs right now. It's very uh, like the 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 woman who got me into this, and this century, I guess you would say, was a Spencer scholar. I don't know if when she retires, she's going to be replaced with a Spencer scholar. 
Um, but that's, that's an even narrower version of what you were going through, right? It's not right. enough to have the English PhD. It's enough to be able to teach a class in Spencer or Milton or Shakespeare. Well, so and, um, and that's what they're looking for. Adam and I have very different experiences because my advice has been, Andrew, teach as much as you can outside of English in mm -hmm. terms of like teaching. I, I've taught film classes. Um, I've taught queer studies in the 19th century. Like I, so I feel like my advice has been try to do as much as possible as if you were in women's and gender studies or other area study, but all based within English. Like I'm the jack of all trades, but at the same time, I was told don't go into an area study because like you're saying, Adam, unfortunately, when it comes down to it, the English department will want to see that I have an English PhD. Yeah, I don't go into an area study, meaning gender studies, that sort of thing. Yeah, but then they'll be right. like, oh, he has a, and see, this isn't, I don't know if this is a, how it'll think, play out, but they'll say, yeah. oh, he has a grad certificate in women's gender sexuality studies, and he's done all of these courses. Um, right. I think the, 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 my suspicion is that the, that it's, I mean, because, you know, when I was in my, my graduate program, I, you know, I actually taught film. I didn't teach film very much at all because um, there wasn't much opportunity for it. Um, you know, so much of my teaching was actually, um, you know, teaching freshman writing, of course. Um, but, you know, uh, teaching that or teaching you know, literature courses or um, teaching like the sort of general humanities course uh, and things of that nature. So, um, you know, I had experience doing those sorts of things. And mm -hmm. if I had, you know, gotten a chance to make a case to a hiring committee, I could have laid that out for them in person. I mean, it's in, it, you know, it was in my, my job materials, but mm -hmm. I think that the, I think the, Andrew, the sort of what you're talking about is kind of the better route to be on, the, the better pathway to be on is to have the sort of, um, you know, the degree that says English or the degree that says history or the degree that says, you know, a, a more traditional discipline that, that is kind of legible to larger programs or larger departments. Um, and then once they are kind of, you know, because of that willing to more willing to look at your application materials and then see that, oh, this person has taught courses in film, this person has taught courses in gender studies, this person has caught, taught courses in, uh, you know, uh, composition, whatever the case might be, then those things get looked at as, as additional benefits to your case, you know. Well, I, I think we can't deny the elephant in the room. It's probably not even an elephant now. It's a stampede of elephants, which is a lot of these area studies. I mean, I'm very grateful that Stony Brook has a very thriving um, women's gender sexuality PhD program, a whole department actually, which is not um, common. Um, at a lot of universities. Most times it's a collateral program or, you know, 
um, a minor program. Um, but when I start to see now the trend of even American studies programs incorporating into disciplines at Stony Brook, our film has incorporated into English. Mm -hmm. Our comparative lit has incorporated into English. Our romance language department probably will incorporate into English. Um, so like the English program has now become the catch-all. And I don't know if you were noticing this, Adam, as you were leaving, but it's become the catch-all for all these programs. And they started to think about, oh, we should maybe talk, we should maybe try and change our mission of the English department. Um, like they're even trying to create a digital humanities program and a yeah. public humanities program. Like I just think anytime there's a new humanities iteration, it's happening in the English department. Um, the fascinating. The American studies program that I graduated from, that my PhD is from, is now a certificate in the English department at Michigan State. So that's what happened. Yeah. 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 But I guess in the back of my mind, right, and we don't make these decisions lightly when we're choosing what, we don't talk about it a lot, but like, why did we go into a certain PhD? And I was really torn because I really wanted to go into either a classics PhD, a women's and gender PhD, or an English PhD. But I had a lot of conversations with undergrad advisors who I asked, you know, what, what does it look like right now in the job market? Um, but I think that also brings up a lot of us know that the job market, especially in the last 10 years, um, we always hear, oh, the job market isn't doing well. Yeah. Um, or like I was told um, by my undergrad advisors, um, you know, don't think that there'll be a job waiting for you in academia when you end your PhD. You have to do this because you're passionate about it, right? And I think a lot of us hear some kind of narrative like that when we enter. I should think all of us. Yeah, yeah. but then Adam um, uh, and I talk a lot on this podcast about this fantasy. I think this happened in our first season a lot, but we talked about how we started to just become so um, enveloped in the fairy tale of the passion of studying and just the community. Yes, and you start yes. to kind of start to distance away from that narrative of the job market. But then like you said, um, Adam, it comes back. Yeah, at, well, at a certain point it becomes yeah. unavoidable. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're in your first couple of years at a, at a, in a PhD program, um, you know, you're, you're doing, you're caught up in the sort of, um, well, you know, you, 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 you're meeting your cohort and making friends and you're, you're, you're doing your, maybe your coursework, depending on the nature of the PhD program, of course, maybe there's a year of coursework you still have to do, or um, you got to pr prepare for your exams or, um, you know, however the program is organized, mm -hmm. different, different programs are organized differently. Um, but um, so yeah, you do get caught up in that kind of like, you get caught up in a lot of times the, uh, the hubbub of it and the sort of uh, the the kind of like work of it in some ways too um, yeah. and then uh, it sort of hits you in the face and like there is also I think too um, a little bit of you know all of us um, you know in academia but also people outside of academia too um, 
we kind of, uh, we go into it and we suffer a little bit of the sort of, you know, protagonist syndrome where we, <laughs> we hear about how bad the job market is and we mm-hmm. kind of know in our mind that it is, it's very bad. Um, but we think at least until it stares us in the face that, you know, we're going to be one of the ones who manages to avoid that and get a job. And we will uh, pull the sword out of the stone. Right. Yeah. That we're (laughs) going to be, yeah, you know, exactly. I'll be King Arthur. Um, (laughs) You know, my friend over here might not be, um, but you know, I'll be the lucky one. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, then some people have, and I don't know, you know, how much you want to talk about your personal life, that's up to you. But, you know, and then some people we've had on our podcast, um, a mother who was having a child during her PhD, mm-hmm. some have to care for a parent, uh, some, you know, can't relocate across the country, right? And then right. all of these factors really start to, um, you know, if you're single and you are financially stable, that puts you in a very different situation than someone who's, um, you know, might have a partner who can't uh, relocate. And these factors aren't always discussed. Yeah, exactly. You run into things like the two body problem um, (laughs) sometimes where, I mean, most of your listeners probably know what that is, but you know, why, don't you, why don't you say what it is anyway? Yes, I like that. It's the body problem. Right, sure. Where you have basically a couple, um, oftentimes, I mean, oftentimes it's two people who are in academia, but not necessarily, but basically, you know, um, where you, um, the issue is that, you know, somebody who's looking for an academic position, you, as most people who are listening to this probably know if you want to find an academic position, you have to look basically everywhere. You know, you have to apply mm-hmm. anywhere and everywhere if you're going to make um, sort of distinctions. Um, your chances of getting the academic position that you covet are, uh, you know, get cut down considerably if you're going to say to yourself, I won't apply for positions in, uh, you know, the South the Southeast or I won't apply for a position that's outside of a major city or whatever the case might be, whatever your mm-hmm. qualifiers are. Um, and of course the two body problem is that one, when you have two people who um, are applying for academic positions, the problem gets uh, magnified because then of course you want, of course, to be close to your partner. So now you have to try to find, um, you know, jobs that are at least within some reasonable distance to each other. So the problem becomes magnified even further. Mm -hmm. Uh, How many have a PhD who are on the staff of Humanities New York? um, I have, Sarah has. uh, So I think if I'm counting correctly, I think four of us out of what is there right now? Seven. Okay. And we'll, I'll include a link to the Humanity so, New York page. So everyone can let, yeah. So let, lest we, lest we go the entire length of our interview without covering this topic, what is Humanities New York? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. Good question. Um, so, uh, Humanities New York is the organization that I work for. Um, we are a uh, nonprofit organization uh, that provides um, grant funding for um, uh, arts and cultural organizations, actually any nonprofit in New York State um, that wants to um, present uh, public humanities programming. Um, and we also uh, do um, uh, some public humanities programming of our own. We also you know, plan and execute some public humanities programming of our own. Um, and uh, we are the sort of, uh, we're the state affiliate of the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities at the federal level. So uh, we are, uh, you know, we have sibling organizations in every uh, state and territory in the country. So if any of your listeners are listening from someplace that's not New York, uh, you know, you have a humanities council in, as long as you're in the United States, uh, you have a humanities council in your state or territory. Yeah. Andrew uh, has a lot of groupies in New Jersey. Okay. So uh, yeah, there is a, yeah, there is a good, there's a, yeah, I've looked into it. Yeah. New Jersey has one. Um, uh, we're friends with them. Um, oh, good, good. That's good. So the, yeah, not, there's, not, not, there's that, no rivalry. So there's yeah, no not, rivalry not that we're there. enemies, not that we're enemies with any of them, but, uh, you know, um, <laughs> oh, no, you know, the Dukes of York and Jersey still, uh, um, it's still, it still lingers. Yes. Um, uh, but, good God. Yeah. So, and I thought there's a, maybe this is only with, uh, the public humanities. So that was a, mm -hmm. that's a, specific that, fellowship there's a melon affiliation isn't there yeah i mean for the for the sort of for the public humanities fellowship which is the uh program that uh andrew um is part of which is part of our larger partnership with um universities around the state um that program in particular is funded by the mellon foundation so um okay. that uh that project um none of that is um taxpayer funded you know ah so, okay so we, but not we every not every grant you do is funded by the melon foundation no no no, no. that's okay. that's a special the the fellowship is a special um project a special project that is specifically melon funded the vast majority of our funding as an organization comes from um, the federal government through um, our connection with the uh, National Endowment at the federal level. Okay. So like the National Endowment's um, funding that they get every year, um, you know, you know, provided that uh, it continues to exist, although, you know, now that um, we have a new presidential incoming presidential administration that will probably not try to zero it out every budget year. Um, mm. The, uh, the national endowment, you know, gets a chunk of money every year from the federal government. Mm -hmm. Part of that chunk uh, goes to the national endowment itself for its own programs and grants. And part of that chunk um, gets paid to what's called the uh, federal state partnership. 
um, which then gets divided out to the um, state humanities councils. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So there's a specific budget line. Yes, there is a specific budget line in the federal budget, which goes out to the um, state humanities councils. And I'm assuming that you basically can draw yeah, a line, like between all of these different humanities um, centers and mm -hmm. um, maybe even some philanthropic organizations or, well, they might operate differently. I'm thinking of like the Rockefeller, the Mellon, they have a different budget. Yeah, I mean, they operate very differently um, because they are, um, I mean, they're, 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 you know, foundations, philanthropic foundations, and, you know, they operate basically because, um, I mean, you know, Mellon exists because Andrew W. Mellon back in the day made like, you know, tons and tons of money. And then, yeah. <laughs> you know, when he died, basically said, you know, now give away my tons and tons of money. Um, and basically, but his, money of, has, his money has continued to accrue interest. Right, exactly. Because most of it is in, um, you know, um, you know, basically in the part of it's in the stock market, part of it's in, in, you know, various um, trusts and stuff like that. So they have, Mellon Foundation has a, um, uh, you know, a drawdown that they have every year that they then spend out for their grants and stuff like that. Most foundations operate that way, basically. Um, How about like, say the Kennedy Center? Would that be something under the NEH? They probably, I mean, I think Kennedy Center gets money from the NEH, um, but they probably they apply for it, um, I think, probably under different grant lines and stuff like that. Um, you know, I don't think, I don't think the NEH has like a continuing, I don't think they continuously fund any organizations like on a year to year basis without, you know, requiring, um, you know, an application. Um, mm -hmm. Although the Kennedy Center actually might get funded through the NEA. National Endowment for the Arts. Ah, okay. Yes. Um, so like most like museums and like performing arts centers and stuff like that tend to get funded through NEA rather mm -hmm. than NEH. So like the Metropolitan so Opera House. Is probably NEA. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, this is so, uh, no, I'm just so interested. I think this helps orient just what Humanities New York itself. Yeah, we as humanities students tend not to want to think about these things, but they are as right. much a part of our reality as the footnotes to, uh, the, I don't know, the Norton critical edition of something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's how the sausage gets made. Yeah, exactly. You know what right. I there? Yeah. Um, oh my goodness. But, um, and there is actually a third organization, a third um, sort of cultural uh, uh, federal um, agency called um, IMLS, which is the Institute for Museum and Library Science, um, which okay. uh, is like the NEA and the NEH. They get, they're a federal agency. They get money through the federal government's budget, um, but all their funding goes towards, um, as the name implies, like <laughs> museums and libraries. Oh man, I was gonna guess that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this, you know, during a pandemic, during such a shift in your own responsibilities, Adam, um, 
maybe if you want to do a certain um, talk back to where you were in a headspace wise at the end of March compared to where you are now in terms of checking in with programming and mm -hmm. your responsibilities. Sure. Um, I think in, I mean, in March, we were all sort of like kind of, um, I guess we were sort of, you know, trying to figure out what we were going to do. And I think that's actually where a lot of, um, you know, sort of arts and cultural organizations were as well. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, everybody knew that they had to shut down. Um, and so everybody, you know, the hope obviously for most people was that, okay, we can shut down for, I mean, you guys remember this, like we can shut down for a few weeks and then, mm -hmm. and then, you know, okay, we can, you know, we'll be able to open up, you know, maybe in a month or two. And yeah. then Broadway was going to be back in a month. I remember that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and, you know, a lot of arts and cultural organizations were hopeful that, um, you know, you could shut your doors for like, you know, museums and mm -hmm. um, uh, libraries, performing arts organizations were hopeful that they could shut down for a little while and then be back open. Um, but, you know, I think that it became very apparent relatively quickly that that was not going to be the case. And so a lot of organizations needed to find ways to pivot um, in some way. And I think the, I mean, the main pivot has sort of been virtual programming, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's been difficult to find another, I mean, some, some organizations have figured out ways to do outdoor um, programming, especially once the kind of, I think, initial, here in New York in particular, I think once the initial sort of like wave of COVID died down in like midsummer, mm -hmm. um, you know, organizations were a little more comfortable saying we could do something outdoors. Um, yeah. And once it was warm enough. Uh, so I think those have been like the main pivots is organization organizations figuring out how to do things virtually mm -hmm. and also figuring out how they can do things outdoors organizations that hadn't traditionally done things outdoors i guess you could say um now i think the um the kind of larger question for a lot of um organizations that we're seeing in the field and for us as well is um what the sort of like what the longer term appetite for that sort of thing is you know, how, how long can, you know, and, you know, we don't know, obviously, how much longer the sort of like, you know, kind of uh, sheltering, quarantine sheltering is going to be happening for, you know. Mm -hmm. Or like, we're. Com I always think too, I'm, I have a feeling that these components mm -hmm. of programming that you've, put so much time into right and you, having you on our podcast I mean I never would have thought that I would have created a podcast right with, um, a year ago Adam and I like we're in such 
like busy schedules that I don't even know if I was really on a daily conversation base with Adam. Yeah. I don't think so. No. I would have thought that you would create a podcast. You, you have, I'm going to create a podcast written all over your face. <laughs> I didn't think that I was going to create a podcast. He's got big podcast energy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now we have little podcast energy. But... <laughs> well, it's funny. Cause yeah, I, I, um, I think I'm a good um, go-getter when it comes to adapting with change, but mm-hmm. I think just all the ways that we've shifted, I like the way you describe that experience, Adam, um, is how, like, yeah, so you're talking about right now your stage of, right. of uncertainty is really, yeah. it and- also seems like a question of comfortability or even personal safety yes and and i think well i think too like people are sort of um i think people are kind of have adapted now to the virtual model in a lot of ways like Mm -hmm. um it's now at a stage where even even some organizations that were kind of behind the curve have sort of caught up um and you know, you now see there's virtual programming. Lots of people are doing it, you know, um, not just, you know, Humanities New York, but all the sort of organizations that we grant fund. Uh, every university is doing virtual programming. Um, you know, all the museums are doing it. Um, all the historical society, all the bigger historical societies anyway, the ones that have budgets. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the question that sort of, I think, is on some people's minds now is how much um how much appetite mm. is there at this point for it you know like at what point does it become um a sustainable model um in the short mm. term and in the long term um, yeah. i mean i don't think i don't think the whole digital thing ever becomes a sustainable model in the long term just because i mean everybody i'm talking to is spending all their time online right so at the end of that people people are reading books for crying out loud people people are <laughs> like that that's how bad that's that's what a what a tight spot we're all in people are people are turning pages with their hand they're, they're doing that thing where they lick their finger mm-hmm. that always makes me just want to vomit a tiny little bit in my mouth whenever oh. i see somebody do it and they're and they're turning pages because because nobody likes uh, being on the computer this long. Well, that and also you need you need the opposite, right? Like you need that opposite stimuli. And, exactly. Well, which is funny because remember when there was the panic calls of, oh, the ebook is going to wipe out the traditional bookstores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who knew that all home. we all we needed was a massive wave of death sweeping the planet. Yeah, and and we would pa- have pa- paper and ink books would be back on top where they belonged. Sorry, was well, that too dark? That was too dark. It was dark. It was dark, but it's, I think the, it's, it serves a purpose. Yeah, and I think well, the question is too is like you know like I can have a virtual program where you know somebody's gonna have a conversation or have a have a you know give a lecture about something that I'm very interested in, mm-hmm. and you know. But if I if I if I if I if I'm looking at you know five organizations you know I don't want to do that five times a week, and also 
you know, be watching, you know, the Queen's Gambit and the Mandalorian and, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, like, and, you know, all these other things, like also be reading my emails all day at work. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think, you know, this is something that Adam's getting at. It's like, it's an accumulation of sort of screen time, I think. Mm. Yes. yes. I will say I would love for the radio play to come back because I find myself, I mean, the people, people who are listening to this podcast can't see the knitting needles going back and forth as, as we talk, but I, I find that the ideal entertainment for me at this point is to be listening to something while knitting. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that that makes me like an, a war widow from the 1920s. <laughs> like Where's my soldier. When will like, the like, come? like waiting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My, my, my sweet Edwin perished in the battle of the, of the Somme. And now the only consolation I have is is to to listen to the Phantom. That was one of them, right? I'm not just making things up. I'm pretty sure that was. Uh, one of the I great think radio so. Plays. Or you know that the Lone Ranger or something. The or, or I was one of the people who was taken in by that world, War of the Worlds. Yes, yeah, um, you, were, you were seduced. By that. <laughs> yeah, but I it seemed so plausible. The well, and I was going to say also to. Um, Adam, when you're talking about, yeah, it, how sustainable is this model? Mm -hmm. I was going to say what I am finding so um, enjoyable about uh, cultural institutions is when I know that there's such a collection of YouTube videos, or if I go on their website that it's been recorded. I like the option of a library archive, mm -hmm similar to why I love so much, like Adam's saying about audiobooks, that I can have that in on the background and I'll connect it via my Bluetooth. So maybe I'll listen to someone's lecture. What I find a hard model right now is the live, um, the live lecture that then yeah. appears. Right. And now you cannot, cause like, I really wanted to hear someone talk about Oscar Wilde because of course, really, yeah. um, and this and they're queer thinking about it, but then they weren't recording it, and I was really let down. Aww. Yeah, I think that's that's another sort of um, another kind of uh, trend. I think is that the, I mean, a lot of our programming um, that we specifically. Um, you know, plan and that we mm -hmm. execute ourselves is sort of conversation focused, which is kind of inherently, obviously, for reasons that you can suss out a kind of live, mm -hmm. necessarily alive, um, requires it to well, be there's some, there, I'm sure there's privacy. Yeah. Questions um, take into account if you recorded it. Right. Well, we do, um, we have some events where we have, um, you know, we'll have kind of like speakers, you know, similar to this. I mean, your listeners can't see what I'm saying similar to this, but it's, it's three of us on a zoom screen. Um, and you know, people can use like the Q and a function on a, um, uh, through the zoom to ask questions that way. And then, you know, somebody who's kind of, facilitating the conversation will do something like, oh, somebody's asking 
you know, this. So it, it, it you know, it, there's the opportunity to ask questions um, through that method, uh, which we, we do record and make available to people. So people can watch that, um, but, you know, obviously they don't have the opportunity to uh, interact and ask questions as they would um, had they tuned in live. Where, where is it released for everyone listening? So they can uh, on these programs. I think you can see them all uh, on Humanities New York's YouTube page, I think. Uh, oh, so they can comment on the YouTube video. I don't know if they can comment on the YouTube video. I think we turn comments off because commenting on YouTube is a cesspool. <laughs> so, um, but you know, during the especially event itself. Doing, yeah, like, especially if there's no moderator. Right. Exactly. Right. You do need a moderator. That yeah, is do, a thing that we've learned mm -hmm. on the internet. Yes. Well, and I also, um, like when I'm going to turn, we're, we're recording this almost dinner time now on a Saturday. Um, and it won't be released at that time. So that's why I'm specifying it that way. But when Speak I... for yourself. I eat late. <laughs> okay. Well, it'll be my dinner time um, <laughs> around six. So... What I like to do is listen to a program when I'm cooking. That, oh, I do that all the time. Yeah, yeah right. And so yeah. maybe it's an audiobook, maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's um, a lecture, but a series that I want to just plug. They were actually just um, covered, thankfully, in the arts and culture of New York Times, is the Stars in the House series that benefit the Actors Fund that's been going on since March. Um, with Seth Ferdetsky and his husband, James. And uh, the reason I'm saying their names is because Seth Ferdetsky actually emailed me back um, when I oh, cool. reached out to well, him. So tough. Yeah, and I told him how I assigned it in my fall semester with my students. Mm -hmm. And just that hearing different cast reunions and I don't know, from Cheetah Rivera to um, uh, B.B. Newworth, just all these different Broadway, Vanessa Williams was mm -hmm. on. Um, and that there's just this community that's built on YouTube and you can tune in and people are commenting and there's this live chat going is really exciting to see. But I'm, so I'm glad that there is that component in Humanities New York that yeah. have figured out a way to, um, well, now I'm going to add, I'm going to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, Please do. Yeah, yeah. So are you feeling, well, and it could change every day, right? We've learned that about the pandemic. But um, right now, are you feeling comfortable about Humanities New York's infrastructure from where you're located? Um, like where I'm located in Astoria, Queens, um, well, or no, no. So where you're located um, within the organization program officer. Yes. Within your position. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, we have, I think, adjusted as well as we can to, um, you know, the events of the last year now um or so a little less than a year i guess um uh you know I, I think that um i think it'll be interesting to see what happens as things um 
you know, as things maybe normalize as we've been always, you know, as we've been saying for a long time now, I guess, I don't know, you know, how quickly people will be anxious to get back to face-to-face -to -face programming. So it may be quite a while before we are planning or funding, you know, programs where, you know, a hundred or 200 people are in a auditorium together. You know what I mean? Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's sort of a weird, um, you know, I think that the organization is still, you know, I don't have any doubts as to the health of the organization. I don't know. I don't know if that's a, you know, it's sort of a weird, um, like a lot of small museums or right. Yeah. Like, well, I think that um, you've known, I'm sure, you know, personal stories of sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, you know, we're kind of in a lucky position in that we, um, we do have like a, you know, we do have money that gets set aside for us by the federal government every year. So, you know, the, the biggest danger that we would ever be in would be if, you know, Congress ever decided, you know what, we don't need the National Endowment for the Humanities anymore. So then we would be in pretty um, deep shit. Yeah. Uh, but, but as you said, as, well, yeah, we could be optimistic. Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, my, my, I mean, so, it, so you're... Yeah, we're not faced uh, with... But you know, we, we, yeah, as, as an organization, we, um, we are lucky in the sense that we, um, you know, we have not faced, uh, some of the sort of dire circumstances that a lot of small, you know, small museums or like, you know, little sort of performing arts organizations have faced in the last year. But, you know, at the same time, it's sort of like we've, you know, we've had to sort of like witness some of these organizations fall apart. Um, and we rely to... money probably from you sometimes. Yeah, I mean, and we were, you know, we were the sort of um, conduit for um, some of the CARES grants um, funds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back yeah, it was in... behind the scenes with that as one of the, um... I think yeah. I'm allowed to say I was one of the reviewers for yeah. applications. Yeah, I'm not giving it away at all. But it was a very robust, I mean, the, right, was that April? <laughs> Who knows now? April, May? I don't recall um, exactly when it was. Yeah, but yeah. it was in the time of deep uncertainty of right. local organizations. And their pitch, their pitch a lot of it was, um, we need to transition online. We don't have an online infrastructure. Mm -hmm. This is what we want it to look like yeah. um, for programming. But like, so now a lot of those organizations that I have followed up with some just to see what it looks like, cause I'm curious. Mm -hmm. And especially since listeners know I work with the Whitman birthplace, they went through a very quick transition and now they have a YouTube channel. And mm -hmm. actually you, you're following, um, Caitlin Shea, who works for the Whitman Birthplace, her interview with us. Um, mm -hmm. So everyone now are, has 
been up to date with what their infrastructure looks like. But as you're saying, some um, organizations weren't as fortunate or maybe didn't have that financial. I mean, back. even, yeah, even some organizations that, you know, got a little bit of support. It's just simply, you know, like a small performing arts organization or a small museum that's relying almost entirely on, you know, getting people through the door um, for their budget, you know, that doesn't have, you know, like a, a lot of backup, uh, you know, doesn't have like a, a bunch of money in a, in a fund somewhere. doesn't have wealthy donors or something like that, you know, yeah, doesn't have some of those money. Yeah, some of those organizations, yeah. you know, the COVID has essentially ruined them, basically. Yeah, but I think in the back of, well, Adam always will say that I'm the <laughs> person with the glass half full. Uh, <laughs> right, this is where we're the yin and yang to each other sometimes. Um, but. I do wonder, will there be a certain, I don't want to call it a renaissance, because mm -hmm. then it's going to bring up his whole... What are you, what are you actually trying to say? But what I'm trying to say is, like, I'm sure some of us have thought, will there be a resurgence mm -hmm. of what some of so. the groups coming together, even as a collaborative or a collective? Um, isn't that a little premature? We're hardly out of the woods yet. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's one of those things that is like deep in the recess of my mind that, you know, hopefully that's something we can look towards in the future. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, if there are small museums out there that had to close that, you know, whatever collections they might have or whatever folks that they had on staff who are sort of you know passionate about history will kind of be able to house whatever artifacts they might have had somewhere else um, or you know performing arts organizations that maybe those people will be able to get together um, in some other configuration elsewhere um, but mm -hmm. Yeah, like you said, like right now, like Adam said, who, you know, it, things are in a holding pattern, I guess, yeah. right now until. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's, it's really dire. The, the fact that like people seem to know what to do, but just don't have the money to do it. Yeah. And that's true for the artists as, as artists. Mm -hmm. And it's also true for people in general. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people who really want to be sheltering in place or quarantining or whatever they need to do. And they just, the, they have gig jobs. Yeah. Right. How, how do you quarantine when you have a gig job? Right. And you have to show up to somebody's home as a cleaning person, as a taxi driver, as a, yeah. as a sex worker, whatever, whatever it is you do. You're and you're going to be. Exactly. exactly. And there's exactly. a lot. And maybe you have like a four-year-old who has to stay home from school for two weeks. Like, right. There, well, this is why we know this is an unequal virus, mm -hmm. right? In terms of who, right? Is, like, why um, people of color are three times more likely to be madam? Uh, yeah, I, I learned. I think I learned a hell of a lot because I, I really am one of these people who's guilty of 
not looking like like Andrew says, like not looking into how the sausage is made. Uh, and one of the one of the things that Andrew does a lot better than I do certainly is is to like you know research and so on the not just um, not just you know Whitman and Wild, but also like how how the um, how the how the I don't know how the what what the state of the of academia is or what the state of a particular aspect of academia and I think that's that's really important um, and so this has been a really good uh, conversation for me you know talking about how these like smaller institutions are funded and mm-hmm. how some of these smaller institutions have been trying to um grow from the body blows of the last year or so yeah um i mean we've we talked with people at the whitman foundation uh the whitman museum sorry the whitman birthplace Mm -hmm. no i'm mispronouncing things uh we talked about people at the whitman birthplace we've talked about um people staging a socially distanced musical we've done all these things at the at the shall we say the the micro level but it is crucially important to talk to somebody like you who who's who sees you know a hundred such applications yeah. in a given us, span of time yeah you're giving us the um uh oh wait there goes my computer so i'll edit this out but um okay. <laughs> you're you're giving us that hitchcockian vertigo <laughs> without all that without all the paranoia um which <laughs> would be vertigo <laughs> I guess it'd be more like Anne of Green Gables. Um, uh, the, the panoramic I, perspective, is that what you're... Yeah, I'm trying to go for like Adam up on the bell tower. But... I like I like it, I like it, but... Am I Jimmy Stewart in this analogy or... Yeah, well, that's why I don't want to put you in <laughs> Jimmy Stewart role. Um, but you've really given us a behind the scenes look and you know, a behind... conversation that I don't think, like Adam's saying, we are privy to a lot um yeah so well, i do think that the last year is making us all more political and more more politically and more financially aware mm-hmm. and yeah. that's not it's not a good thing because you know people are dying and cities and companies and households are in ruins and that's that's the cause of it and mm-hmm. But we're aware but, of our positionality. Right. We mm-hmm. we have to we have to do what we can with what we have. And what we have is human and financial disaster. And we are becoming as a result more aware mm-hmm. of what happens in our country at a financial level, at a political level, and so on. And it is all to the good if we as grad students, as recent graduates, etc. Um if we were like myself guilty of not paying sufficient attention to the scaffolding of our of our business of our line of work if if we pay more attention to that then that's something yeah Yeah. and i mean you know to be perfectly honest i you know i was much the same way when i was a graduate student and i think not for nothing that sort of level of financial and bureaucratic scaffolding that you're talking about, Adam, I think is 
oftentimes deliberately um, sort of made obscure yeah. by um, a lot of the sort of, you know, institutions um, that, you know, you may be very intimately involved with. Um, so, you know, I don't That's fair. Well, <laughs> you know, I don't think you should blame yourself too badly for I, it. I appreciate the absolution. It's, it's like when you, I, my, I always love my illusions. I think I get more of a kick out of them than anyone who listens, but. Well, let's, let's hear this one and we'll be the well, Okay, I'll end on this, which, you know, it's, when you see the Phantom of the Opera and the opening um, metaphor, I love so much because everything is covered in sheets. If you remember the staging, and once the overture begins after the auction and the chandelier is revealed, right? Then the opera house is finally rebuilt, but it's not rebuilt. The splendor and the glamor first exists under blankets. I mean, blankets. <laughs> I mean, maybe there are blankets under, under sheets. <laughs> and it kind of reminds me of that where we really want to get to the Paris Opera House splendor but we have to we first start with a monkey playing cymbals yeah the monkey playing cymbals yes yes yeah this was a particularly weird one but i i appreciate it (laughs) it popped into my head it was particularly out there i mean yeah yeah it was was very associative Uh, but thank you so much adam and um i'm glad that we had you as um part of our new year programming and for those of you who My have pleasure. that overture stuck in their heads now, I apologize. The re- I like the rest of the musical, but I'd rather like I don't know some some keywords: masquerade, point of no return. Well, I'm sure now songs. everyone, after they conclude this listen, is now going to listen to the overture. Oh God! <laughs> well, I guess there are worse ways to spend your day, but I, think I can't so. think of any. I think so. Okay. Well. Um, if you, every, everyone listening, please, um, join our Facebook. Um, you can inquire about our writing group that Adam and I, um, do weekly and uh, follow us on Twitter. Um, you can say the handle. Is it at ivory boiler room? Okay, great. Okay. Uh, stay safe out there. Be healthy. Well, try to stay as healthy as possible. Um, and order.
Thank <laughs> you. 